Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 019, The Iliad of Homer, book 4, part 2. Last time we talked, we discussed the actions of Pandaros, his, um, a council meeting of Hera and Zeus and Athena on top of Olympus. Um, and again, back to Pandaros, we talked about how he foolishly following the the instigation of Athena in the form of a son of Antenor shot Menelaus in the thigh. And in so shooting Menelaus in the thigh, broke the truce and also um, instigated a speech by Agamemnon where Agamemnon not only revealed tenderness of heart for his brother, but also a sort of selfish feeling of potential worthlessness at the notion of his brother dying and therefore him going home with his name forever remembered as the greatest loser in all history because his force ten times larger than the Trojans should have handled them with relative ease. And ten years of fighting, going home empty-handed because your brother died in a battle that you allowed for and made the terms for, well, you just don't look very effective as a leader or as a man in that way. So, <clears throat> Agamemnon was very much afraid that his brother was dead. However, we found out that his brother was not dead. His brother Menelaus had actually just harmed. It was just a flesh wound. And they summoned Machaon, who we realized was a very competent healer because he's described as the son of uh, Asclepius, who's the god of healing, and he's also described as godlike, and he's also described as having the arts that Chiron knows, and Chiron is the centaur that supposedly told or taught Achilleus when he was young. Though Homer doesn't accept that mythology, he says that a man named Phoenix, uh, who I believe exists in no other mythology, though is mentioned, I believe, by Ovid, um, he... Uh, he is certainly an invention of Homer, as much mythology that I share that I will share with you from Homer is. And so Agamemnon, seeing his brother safely treated, understanding that he's not going to die, that his life is an mortal peril, goes about to rouse his troops with his spirited fury, and to um, share his opinion of them essentially, to to let each of the captains that he speaks to know precisely what he thinks of him in that moment. And so who does he go to see first? And you might imagine that the order in which he goes to see these people represents the order in which he values the skills that they bring to the table. And so he goes to see first Idomeneus. And what does he like about Idomeneus? That he's a king, that, he brought, that he's rich. He brought 80 ships to Agamemnon's 100, only outstripped by Nestor with 90 ships. With 90 ships, and Nestor's too old. So Idomeneus is the only suitable one from Crete, king. Idomeneus also has a henchman, Mariones, who we mentioned uh, likes to kill people in brutal ways and hear them scream as they die. He, um, and he goes about and does a lot of Idomeneus' work. And it's funny, I almost called him Agamemnon because Agamemnon often has heralds doing his work and he also often has Menelaus trailing behind him as sort of a lackey or a sidekick, which is something he'll actually explicitly bring up in Book 10. Inter interpolation or not, as some some uh, scholars will argue. And so Agamemnon, Agamemnon finds nothing at fault with Idomeneus, and in fact says of him, I honor you, Idomeneus, this is line 257, 
two and li two line two sixty five or excuse me to two sixty four so lines two fifty seven to two sixty four. I honor you, Idominius, beyond the fast mountain demands, whether in battle or in any action whatever, whether it be at the feast. When the great men of the Argives blend in the mixing bowl and the gleaming wine of the princes, of course, that would be what Agamemnon thinks of first, the feast, giving the feast, being king as he is, and not having been on the battlefield for some time until recently, even though all the rest of the flowing Herodicians drink out their portion, still your cup stands filled forever, even as mine, for you to drink when the pleasure takes you. Rise up then to battle, be such as you claimed in time past. And so Agamemnon says, basically, you're my boy, I see you all the time at the feast, I always keep your cup filled, and you are worthy of having your cup filled, I see you very much as another me. And so fine, good. So he, like King Priam, values the emperor first, because recall that Priam observed first the most royal of men, Agamemnon, along the fields of battle when he was talking during the Tachoscopia to Helen. And so now you see Agamemnon visiting with the most lordly of his men, Edominius the Cretan. And so you might expect that he, like Priam, would then see Odysseus second, but Agamemnon actually shows something of a character flaw here. He, he has something of a rigid and traditionalist perspective on what is valuable. So, of course, who does he go to next? Well, he goes to the Iontes. Who are the Iontes? Aias the Greater and Aias the Lesser. Aias the Greater of 12 ships, Aias the Lesser of 40 ships. And recall that Aias the Greater is a, a huge man, cousin to Achilles. Not a brute, though. Beautiful, he said. Tall. Extraordinarily strong. He carries a large figure-eight shield, which can cover not only him, but his half-brother Teucris, or Aias the Lesser, after Teucris gets hit by a rock later on in the story. And he does not wear armor because he has this anachronistically large shield. So you might say that he's extraordinarily confident, but in a very much legitimate way, because without Achilles in this battle, we're going to see some serious fireworks from Aias. And, well, he essentially makes of, he makes of hunting Hector look like a sporting event rather than a potential brush with mortal conflict. He's extraordinarily dominant. And then there's Aias the Lesser. Aias the Lesser is far smaller. It's said that he and the men that he leads, the Locrians, they are they wear smaller, better fitting armor, leather, lightweight, and they carry bows, so they shoot from afar. One thing about that, later in the story, Aias the Lesser will stand next to Aias the Greater, who essentially by himself will hold off one of the flanks of the the Trojan fighters. Um, he will make one Hades of a name for himself in his stand. Well, after Teucris and a host of individuals fail to stand by him, Aias the Lesser will take a stand next to him, which is incredible for two reasons. One is this. He's an archer. He doesn't need to be in the fray like that. He could easily stand back and shoot. And that brings me to the second point, which is his fellow archers... They stay back of the fighting, which means one of two things. Either he ordered them to and is extraordinarily brave and took on the responsibility of fighting along Aias the Greater himself. Two, he did that because of his extraordinary competency and, brave, and bravery. Or three, his men were too afraid to come along with him. 
in any one of those three lights, he comes off extraordinarily well. And so when he and Ias the Greater fight together, well, this is how Homer describes it. On his way through the thronging men, he came to the Iontes. These were armed, and about them went a cloud of foot soldiers. As from his watching place, a goat herd watches a cloud move on its way over the sea before the drive of the west wind. Far away, though, he be, he watches it. That's an odd translation issue there. Far away, though, he be, he watches it. Blacker than pitches, moving across the sea and piling the storm before it. And as he sees it, he shivers and drives his flocks to a cavern. So about the two Iontes moved the battalions, close compacted of strong and God-supported young fighters, black and jagged with spear and shield to the terror of battle. So they're described as an immutable motive force of nature, a dark cloud bringing the storm, forcing at its very presence a goat herd to flee in terror from it. That's their effect on other men. You see the Iases, you know a storm is coming. You get out of the way before it gets there. That's the sort of respect they get. It'll be fairly rare, actually, I think, and I'll be looking through the text to make sure this is true, um, for other champions to willfully engage with Ias. There will occasionally be times where a fighter goes out on the battlefield and seeks out combat with another fighter. Um, We'll see that with Sarpedon and Tlepolemus. Um, we'll see that with, of course, Hector and Achilles. We'll see that with Aias and Hector a couple times. We'll see that with Diomedes and Aeneas. Um, we'll see that in Achilles and Aeneas as well. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain that with Aias, it will pretty much be him doing the challenging, um, unless there are several, several Trojan fighters surrounding him, which will also happen multiple times while he is attempting to seemingly single-handedly defend the Achaean ships. So, what does this say about Agamemnon? Well, let's look at the compliment he gives to these two first. And that former quote was lines 274 to 283. Here's Agamemnon at 285. Iontes, O leaders of the bronze-armored Argives, to you too I give new orders. It would not become me to speed you, now that yourselves drive your people on to fight strongly. Father Zeus and Athena and Apollo, if only such a spirit were in the hearts of all my people, then perhaps the city of Lord Priam would be bent underneath our hands, captured and utterly taken. So what has Agamemnon said there? Well, first and foremost, he compares them to Zeus because they help to impose proper order on the men. Uh, Athena, because he perceives them as highly competent and skillful and capable of getting the job done. And Apollo, because they hold the proper aim, which is connected with Zeus as well. You might say that that's the most competent trinity that you could make out of the 12 Olympian gods. That's the brain structure. The one who takes aim and gets his aim with true aim, Apollo, the one that gets anything done no matter what, and is essentially acting as the will of Zeus, Athena, which is why she was born from his head, by the way, and Father Zeus, who represents 
um, the balance of the entire order of society. These guys are great. And this also means that Agamemnon perceives that what balances society is still strength to some extent and not competence because he values these men above Odysseus. And so how does that mean that he values strength above competence? Precisely because he still perceives strength and battle prowess as competence. What it is that Odysseus brings even though his battle competence in terms of physical prowess will not be the same as Aias the Lesser and Aias the Greater, though he is a talented fighter, um, is that he brings battle strategy and tactics to the fore. And in fact, the whole fact of the Iliad will be a testament to the fact that the Achaeans have not yet realized the full use of Odysseus's abilities. Because once Achilleus and Aias the Greater die, which both happen after the Iliad, by the way. And the Achaeans are left without their two greatest champions in terms of strength and physical prowess. They'll be rather dispirited. And, well, that's when Odysseus, with the help of Athena <clears throat> and the craftsmanship of Apeus, will come up with the idea for the Trojan horse. And that's what will end up winning the Trojan War after all this fighting. So, you know, knock on a wall for 10 years, get nowhere, lose much in terms of time, resources, and people, patience for that matter, life, come up with brilliant strategy, immediately sack place. And so, though within the confines of how the Achaeans were thinking at the time of the Iliad, Aias the Greater and Aias the Lesser might be perceived as more competent of Odysseus, by the end of the war, Odysseus's competence will be perceived as supreme. And so actually, we will be talking about Odysseus, and Agamemnon will foolishly rebuke him in just a moment, but after the strength of the Iontes comes Nestor. And well, I think this is an important point, because though Nestor is wise and contemplative and gives good speeches, his battle prowess is now fairly non-existent, though he will go out onto the battlefield in a chariot and it seems as if his men actually fight from chariots, whereas most men fight from the ground. Even many of the champions will throw spears from chariots, and chariots have two horses, and some have an anachronistic third trace horse at the side that helps them to turn. Um, most chariots are for two people. There's a driver who will often get hit by spears, and there's a champion who will ride with them. That is a mark of status to have chariots, and in fact, something about Pandaros is that his foolish self left his chariots at home, indicating his, his idiocy, essentially, um, and weak character. And so Nestor, what he brings to the table is wisdom and advice. However, Agamemnon does not value good advice as much as competency in battle yet. We will see a shift in that, though, during the course of the Iliad. He will start to value Nestor's advice more and more. But you might also say that what Nestor offers... It, or rather what Odysseus offers is a combination of Nestor and the Iontes. If the Iontes are not as good in counsel but are in battle, and Nestor is good in counsel but not in battle, which will be a common dichotomy drawn by the characters in the text, then Odysseus is the mixture of the two. He, is, he has tremendous battle prowess, though not as much as Aias the Greater or Achilleus, and there is some suggestion that Diomedes and Agamemnon might be his superior, though he is the best wrestler. 
which actually makes perfect sense because wrestling is the art of intelligent application of competent force. It takes tremendous strategy, discipline, self-restraint, and intelligence, um, and extraordinary athleticism. And well, that's Odysseus embodied. You might say that he's intelligence embodied, and well, that's actually directly evidenced by the fact that Athena loves him. But the problem here is that though Agamemnon has gone about and complimented first Idomeneus, so like him, then the Iontes, so battle competent, then Nestor for his wisdom, wishing that Nestor were younger again. Well, then he goes to see Odysseus, and Odysseus, well, this is, this is fairly interesting. Odysseus, has he's next to the Athenians. Uh, Menestheus is their leader. And they haven't yet noticed that the battle has begun, so it looks as if they're hanging back. And so what's interesting about this is Agamemnon then really lays into Odysseus. Son of Pateos, the king supported by God, and you too, you with your mind forever on profit and your ways of treachery. Nice projections, Agamemnon. Though also true of Odysseus. Why do you stand here skulking aside and wait for the others? For you too it is becoming to stand among the foremost fighters and endure your share of the blaze of battle. But here's what you have to hear, because as he came on, the son of Pateos, Menestheus, driver of horses, standing still, and about him the Athenians, urgent for battle. Next to these resourceful Odysseus had taken position, and beside him the Cephalinian ranks, no weak ones, were standing. Since the men had not heard the clamor of battle, but even now fresh set in motion the battalions moved of Achaeans and Trojans breaker of horses. So Odysseus hasn't yet noticed that the fight has started. So when Agamemnon lays into him and says that he should be at the front, he considers this unjust because he hasn't had time to see what's happening. That said, we said that Odysseus represents the active force of mind within the Athenians and that what he offers to um, Agamemnon, or excuse me, not the Athenians, but the Achaeans, and what he offers to Agamemnon in particular is his absolute competency and ability to get anything done. And so he, he is to Agamemnon essentially what Athena is to Zeus, and, um, and often to Hera in this text. But Hera's and Zeus's will are essentially one in this way, though there will be a, a curious and interesting and funny diversion, books 12 to 14. And so the, the essential problem here is that Odysseus should have already noticed if he's really Odysseus and has these skills that the fight has started. But on the other hand, that might be the foolishness of Agamemnon showing through precisely because if Odysseus hasn't seen what's happening yet, how is he supposed to react appropriately? He is doing what he should do. So it's almost as if Agamemnon is holding him to a divine standard, as if he should be in some way omniscient. And unless... He, um, unless he embraces that standard, he, he will be wanting, but, well, Odysseus is quick to remind the son of Atreus, Agamemnon, exactly how he feels, then looking darkly at him darkly, resourceful Odysseus spoke to him. <clears throat> what is this word that broke through the fence of your teeth, Atreides? That would be a common expression. What word has escaped the barrier of your, your teeth, your mouths, or excuse me, what word has escaped the barrier of your mouth's teeth? Uh, which is such a great way to say, what the heck did you just say to me? 
What is this word that broke through the fence of your teeth, Atreides? How can you say that when we Achaeans waken the better war god on Trojans, breaker of horses, and I hang back from fighting? I hang back from fighting? Only watch. If you care to, and if it concerns you, the very father of Telemachus locked with the champion Trojans, breakers of horses, your talk is wind and no meaning. He defends himself, Odysseus does. It's wonderful that he does. And in fact, he says something very interesting about language there. Your talk is wind and no meaning. And, well, that's, that's very much not postmodern. And so, wow. The other thing he says is that he calls himself the father of Telemachus, not the son of Laertes. And that's a very interesting sort of thing. Because most men derive their potency from the fact that their fathers were potent, and their fathers showed their potency on the battlefield and by the fact that they are their fathers and had sons. Odysseus, however, suggests that his potency comes not from his father, but from himself, and that he's proven his pro potency by having a son, Telemachus, and that he's going to continue to prove his potency through his actions on the battlefield, which I think is just extraordinary. Instead of relying on the, um, the past, he relies on the future. Uh, that may also be because his father does not have a great name as well. And so perhaps he's suggesting that he is making his name right now. And one heck of a name he is making. And, in fact, just to add some glory to his name, at the end of this book, book four, he will strike fear into the heart of Hector and the Trojans, suggesting that competency and the competency of the Achaeans, who will be shown as highly competent, is precisely as scary as it should be to the more superficial Trojans. So, the next person that Agamemnon goes to see is the son of Tydeus Diomedes, and first and foremost, he scolds the heck out of him and tells him that he's nothing like his father Tydeus, and something about Tydeus is that he came from the generation of heroes before, and the generation of heroes is two generations long, the generation of Heracles and the generation of Achilles, and that's it. And so, in the generation before, Tydeus fought at the war at Thebes between Eteocles and Polynices, the sons of Oedipus, and we'll talk about Oedipus. Uh, you know, we'll do the whole trilogy soon enough. And so, though Tydeus was not a large man, and that's actually mentioned that he wasn't very big, he was considered very brave and covered himself in glory at Thebes. And so, actually, Diomedes is sort of a young captain and coming from massive wealth, acquired largely by his father, has really, really big sandals to fill. And so, that will come up constantly. And in fact, something to note, if you're reading alongside me, it's just how often Diomedes is referred to as the son of Tydeus. I don't have the statistics on it yet, but I could almost guarantee that he more than anybody is called by his father's name, perhaps closely followed behind by Agamemnon as Atreides, son of Atreus. And so something interesting about this and something you notice about the wealthy Diomedes, who also himself had 80 ships, I believe, he, he has a henchman, Sthenelus, who's also his charioteer going about. And Sthenelus feels the need to speak up to uh, Agamemnon and defend uh, Diomedes, which uh, shows him for the noble lord he is that Diomedes is... And Diomedes will refuse to give an answer. Diomedes gave no answer in awe before the majesty of his king's rebuking. But Sthenelus, Sthenelus actually says something interesting. He says, Son of Atreus, do not lie. And um, something I should say before that is, Sthenelus is the son of Capaneus. Capaneus... We'll talk about in the Inferno, because he's in hell, as one of the most arrogant men there. Capaneus also fought at the War of Thebes. So Sthenelus and Diomedes are very, very close. Capaneus, how he died at Thebes, is that he climbed up the wall of the city 
and then screamed at Zeus and yelled, Are you real or just an old wives' tale told to scare children? Upon which Zeus, Jupiter, Jove, hurled down a thunderbolt and fulminated Capaneus. He is known to this day as one of the most arrogant men in hell, thanks to Dante. And so, Stenelus is having none of what Agamemnon has to say. Son of Atreus, do not lie when you know the plain truth. We too claim we are better men by far than our fathers. Sounds like his father. Arrogant. We did storm the seven-gated foundation of Theba, though we led fewer people beneath a wall that was stronger. Sort of like what we would hope to do at Troy, even though we have more men now. We obeyed the signs of the gods and the help Zeus gave us, while those others died of their own headlong stupidity. Therefore, never liken our fathers to us in honor. So, that's a wonderful comment by, by um, Stenelus. So, first things first. What he claims is that he and Diomedes are far greater than their father. So, that sounds like the arrogance of the father has been passed down to him. The next thing that he says is that they follow the signs of the gods and the help that Zeus gives them, which suggests that following the signs of the gods or using your mind to see the things which you do not see with your eyes, which are cues of meaning in situations, since they could see those signs, they could see the meaning of situations, they understood what was happening, they didn't die of their own headlong stupidity. And actually that's a theme that will be brought up again and again in the Odyssey as men continue to die due to their lack of self-restraint, intelligence, respect for the gods, and lack of patient endurance. So, it looks like understanding the meanings of things is very important. The, the other interesting thing he says about that is he, he brings up the fact that they recently, the Achaeans, sacked Theba. Theba was the city of Etion, which is where Hecuba, wife of, wife of Hector, or excuse me, I keep saying that, Andromache, wife of Hector, um, where her father, mother, and brothers all died, which she'll say to dramatic effect in book six. And so also where Briseis and Chryseis, the concubines respectively of Agamemnon and formerly of Achilles, came from. And that's a very recent achievement, so Stenelus seems to be still very much uh, pleased with himself and Diomedes about that. Also, technically, Stenelus is the charioteer of Diomedes and thus lower in rank. And that is also mentioned in the catalog of ships. And so it is for him to speak because it is beneath Diomedes' dignity. And in fact, Diomedes will look darkly at his own man and say, Friend, stay quiet, rather, and do as I tell you. I will find no fault with Agamemnon, shepherd of the people, for stirring thus into battle the strong grieved Achaeans. This will be his glory to come if ever the Achaeans cut down the men of Troy and captured Ilion. If the Achaeans are slain, then his will be the great sorrow. Come, let you and me remember our fighting courage. And those are lines uh, 410 to 418 or so. I apologize for not saying the ones before. And so what he says is that 
since Hagman and Mums is the shepherd of the people, and what's the shepherd? A shepherd of lambs is the one who leads the lambs because he has the intelligence to lead them towards the good grass, towards the rewards, as it were, or the place where they'll stay alive. And so you want a good shepherd. And um, so, you know, that'll be picked up in the Christ imagery later in um, Christianity, and I think to good effect. So Agamemnon as the leader, he bears the responsibility for winning this war, and people will say terrible things about him if he loses. And Diomedes, as himself a nascent leader, coming to his own glories and coming up into his own maturity, recognizes this, that it's his glory to get or to lose, so he can say whatever he wants to Diomedes. And Diomedes shows also his youth just by respecting Agamemnon's position so much. He doesn't yet see the man behind the position. And that's very that's very interesting. Okay, so now the battle's about to begin, and this is where we notice what I mentioned earlier. The Achaeans are silent and they fear their proper lords. They stay in fear of their commanders. They have close battalions, they're steady. They, they, they thunder, they're like thundering, they w go along as when along the thundering beach the surf of the sea strikes beat upon beat as the west wind drives it onward. So they're steady, and they're quiet, and they're firm. But the Trojans, as sheep in a man's possession, steady and stand in their myriads, waiting to be drained of their white milk, and bleat interminably as they hear the voice of their lambs, so the crying of the Trojans went up through the wide army, since there was no speech nor language common to all of them, but their talk was mixed, who were called there from the far places. So what do we immediately hear? We hear that the Trojans are less disciplined, more superficial, and less unified as a people. There's more diversity in terms of language. And what does that mean? Well, if there's more diversity in terms of language at a war, that means that there's less open communication. That means that they have worse communication channels and therefore less unity. They can't quite understand each other. They can't mount a singular strategy all together. They have different fighting styles. And because of that, though they have decent numbers, those numbers are not as helpful as those on the Achaean side. So, it's said then that Ares drives on the Trojans and Athena drives on the Achaeans. And so what does that mean? Well, Athena is, an, is the goddess of war strategy and wisdom, also of weaving. She weaves patterns on patterns. That's, uh, that's why women weave and the men speak in assembly. They're all weaving patterns on patterns. And you might say that speaking is simply... A, an abstraction of weaving uh, and that music is also the same because they are abstract patterns that layer themselves that have notes which layer themselves in measures on measures just as one knits yarn together with cloth so does one knit sentences together to make uh, coherence though I think that lasts sentence or two, those last sentences or two were fairly incoherent. Well, the point is this. Athena is the goddess of wisdom and war strategy and the intelligent aspect of applying strategy to a situation and coming to a successful result. She's also known to be accompanied by Nike, uh, the goddess of victory. That's not technically true here, but it is true in practice. She is the goddess of competency and therefore when she applies herself to something, Boom, that thing happened. She also manifests herself often as the will of Zeus coming from his head. If Zeus wills something, it happens. So, 
It means that the Achaeans are more tightly ordered, have a better command structure and strategy than the Trojans. That alone indicates that they will be successful against the Trojans. Because what does Ares represent? Well, Ares is actually a foreign god. He comes from Thrace, which is, um, which is near Troy, just, uh, just west of and north of Troy. And in fact, uh, the Thracians who come to Troy will be dealt with in a, a fairly nasty and inglorious manner in book, in book 10 during the Dolanea, the so-called interpolation. It's come up twice today. And so Ares, who's described for the very first time as manslaughtering, with three epithets, manslaughtering, bloodstained, and stormer of strong walls. And so he's far more the god of chaos and violence and disorder than is Athena. While Athena is competency and therefore competency using violence at times to bring order back to a situation, Ares delights in the battle. And in fact, his twin sister is Eris, who, for, who had a hand in starting the entire Trojan War and is essentially, well, she's called discordia, discord, conflict in the Latin tradition. And so Ares will actually be said at the end of Book 5 to be the most hateful god to Zeus. And what does that mean? Well, Zeus is the principle of order, therefore Ares must be what? The principle of disorder. What's the major principle of disorder in man? His proclivity for violence, his love of blood and savage nature. It's a part of man, and therefore it's a god, and therefore it's in us all. But that's what's driving the Trojans their, their primitive instinct for battle and their savage natures come together rather than the disciplined competency of Athena and the Achaeans who will practically apply their wisdom, their abilities, their strengths in order to decimate the Trojans. Though decimate originally, as a classicist of sorts, did mean to reduce by one-tenth, not to one-tenth, it is now in common parlance, though I used to begrudge this, used to mean that a force has been essentially destroyed. So, the battle begins. The first kill goes to Antilochus, son of Nestor, showing potentially that Nestor's stories are true about his battle prowess and that were he younger, he could do something extraordinarily impressive. One claim he'll make at some point is having killed 50 men in some battle. may have even been his first battle ever after killing some major champion that all had fear of. The next person to get a major kill is Telamonian Ias, that's son of Telamon, Ias the Greater. And uh, it's the son of Anthemion, Simoeios. <laughs> I'm not actually sure how to say that name. Simoeios, that's certainly how you say it. And okay, he's killed. Uh, Odysseus then has one of his companions struck in the groin as he's dragging a corpse off. Which suggests a couple things. For one, one thing you ought to know is that the men, the men on the battlefield will often drag corpses off the battlefield in order to strip them of armor in order to add to their personal wealth. Uh, it's basically like picking somebody's pocket after killing them. That's the idea. Uh, men will do that all the time, and sometimes they'll pay dearly for it. And so what we see here is one of Odysseus's men pays for his avarice trying to take this body off the field by being left open and then catches a spear in the groin, which one might say that his avaricious desires are what killed him. 
Odysseus is stirred to terrible anger and then drives fear into Trojan and the rest of the Trojan champions, excuse me, Hector and the rest of the Trojan champions. And then he himself gets a kill. <clears throat> In fact, he is so terrifying that Apollo feels the need to directly address the Trojans in order to restore their proper aim. <coughs> From lines 509 to 516. Rise up, Trojans! Breakers of horses, bend not from battle with these Argives. Breakers of horses, because they live on a plain and have fine horses like the Spartans. Surely their skin is not stone, not iron, to stand up under the tearing edge of the bronze as it strikes them. <clears throat> no, nor is Achilles, the child of lovely-haired Thetis, fighting. But beside the ship moles his heart sore anger. Sorry, that was 509 to 513. And so... What does he do there? Well, as the god, of, the god of light and archery, he restores the focus of the men and um, reminds them of the facts of the situation. For one, though the Achaeans might seem invincible in moments of prowess, they certainly are not. Anybody who's ever played a sport understands feeling like their opponent was invincible to some extent um, when they're doing well, and it's like nothing you do can work against them. But Apollo reminds them, no, you have swords too, and you can cut into their flesh and they will die. The second thing he reminds them is, they don't even have Achilles right now, so you have no excuses, Trojans. The most terrifying force that exists right now is not with that fighting force. They're not even the same army as they usually are, and that, that's actually quite true. However, Zeus's daughter, Tritogenea, that means thrice-born, so you have a, uh, you know, three will come up frequently in these ancient texts, not only in the Christian tradition. Um, and we can talk about exactly what that, that thrice-born means. I think, I think it, it's, it is sort of Trinitarian in terms of representing being the speech act and the truth that the speech act brings about. Um, or you might say plan, act, Actually, I want to abandon that line of reasoning. The the Trinitarian may be just beyond me at this point right now, but it might also have something to do with the fact that she is reborn in each generation in terms of who she loves and the effects that she has. And so thrice-born indicating the beginning of a pattern, not simply a duality or a, a one or a unity. And so that she exists as the pattern of competency, uh, which helps men to move up the dominance hierarchy or that helps men to be successful in the world, um, that may be why she's called thrice-born, because she exists as the pattern which, the pattern of competency which enables men to be successful in the world, uh, which repeats itself over and over again throughout every generation. Um, good. And so the t book four, which I was sort of worried I wouldn't have so much to talk about today, ends with a beautiful description of the horrors of war. 536. So in the dust these two lay sprawled beside one another, lords, the one of the Thracians and the other of the bronze-armored Apans, and many others beside were killed all about them. There no more could a man who was in that work make light of it, one who was still unhit and still unstabbed by the sharp bronze, spun in the midst of that fighting, with Pallas Athena's hold on his hand guiding him, driving back the volleying spear's throne. <clears throat> For on that day, 
Many men of the Achaeans and Trojans lay sprawled in the dust, face downward, beside one another. And thus the price of war. And that'll just about do it for book four. Next time on the Alexander Schmidt podcast, we'll get to episode 20, I believe, unless something sneaks in between. And um, then we'll start, talk about book five. Book five is a major, major book. We're going to see some cool things in there, like the ability to see gods and the ability for a man to fight the gods, and then the ability for the gods to complain about men fighting about gods, and it will be very interesting. Uh, it'll probably take two or three podcasts, uh, depending on how in-depth I go on some of the details. I'm hoping to go fairly in-depth because I know this book well, unlike the end of book four, which I just lectured on. This is my first time actually lecturing on it, so I hope it was good um, and, um, and informative and interesting and um, thought-provoking. So next time we'll do the beginning of book five. We'll see how far we get into it, and we'll split book five into one, two, or three sections, depending on how far we go when we do it which hopefully will be tomorrow. All right, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Please share. Please call in. Please ask questions. Um, and please have a great day. Thank you.